Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Chris Brook, regular TP contributor, and he's going to be explaining to us how people thought about the European Union before there was an EU, where the idea came from, how it evolved, and how it brought us to where we are now. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. When we're talking about European Union before the EU, we're talking about still a particular kind, which is nation states being united in some way across the continent of Europe, as opposed to the things that have been around for a lot longer, the nation states, the Roman Empire, the Catholic Church. There are ways of unifying Europe where one power dominates. Where does the idea that separate nation states could come together without one power dominating in a union come from? Well, I think I'd I'd want to query the idea that the conversation is always about nation states. And I think that's one area where we have kind of gone wrong because we think of Europe as kind of naturally divided into nation states and then there's a question of can they come together and form a confederation or a federation. But if you go back to the 18th century, the language of nation states is a bit anachronistic that Britain and France are long-established states um, that unify a linguistically similar population and so on. Britain is complicated because there's been the union between England and Scotland of 1707, a union of the crowns earlier, but these are two different nations, so what kind of state do they make up? And much of the rest of Europe in the 18th century isn't really what we'd call nation-states, some very complicated arrangements. And of course, that's one of the things that means that some of the earlier proposals for some kind of European Union you know, at the time and subsequently, they've often been thought of as utopian or hopeless or ideas that were hundreds of years before their time. But some of these proposals were made in an 18th century where states were combining and recombining. They'd seen the union between England and Scotland. Could continental European powers do something similar? And the states or the statelets of Germany were loosely organised through the, the Holy Roman Empire, and this ramshackle association, which Voltaire famously said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but it existed. And again, when people proposed in the 18th century some schemes for European Union, to some eyes they looked like an attempt to extend the framework of the Holy Roman Empire across the entirety of the continent. So I think we have to be cautious with this idea that the problem or the problematic of Europe has always emerged from the story of how nation states can be made to cooperate the nation states themselves emerge in a big way over the course of the 19th and the early 20th century. And the conversation about European Union predates those. So in the 18th century version, is the goal nonetheless peace, essentially, to to stop whatever these entities are, these political entities, from fighting each other all the time? Absolutely. The, The common thread that runs through so many of these schemes is that they're peace projects, or the language that was often used is perpetual peace. The idea that States are fighting all the time and the wars are ended by treaties, but the treaties create a temporary peace, they create a truce, they create an armistice. They don't bring an end to war because in a structurally unstable international system, 
those wars will always come around again. And so the language of perpetual peace gets developed to talk about what would need to be the case for there to be a permanent peace settlement. And it's about peace, and it is almost always also about commerce. The idea that if you have a peaceful Europe, then Europeans can trade with one another across international frontiers, and that can promote prosperity, a wider prosperity, a shared prosperity, a growing economy, and warfare will not get in the way of that anymore, and the kind of things that states do won't get in the way of that. So peace and commerce are two keywords for the conversation going right back to the 18th, indeed back into the 17th century. Was it assumed for the peace project that in order to regulate this peace, that this European Union would need some military or armed force of its own? Was it assumed that at some level, a European army would have to be created? So this is a question on which uh, different people propose different answers. The Abbe de Saint-Pierre, who's the most famous of the 18th century writers on European Union, thought that there should be an international army that the members of his confederation should contribute to. One of the tasks of that international army was to enforce decisions of the Union against recalcitrant members. He also seems to have thought that another function of the army might be to kick the Ottoman Turks out of Europe and liberate Constantinople for for the Christians. So there's a kind of crusading agenda here. Later writers don't always follow him on this. So Jeremy Bentham, the famous uh, utilitarian philosopher, with the slogan uh, to promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number. He writes one of these peace plans around the time of the French Revolution. His idea is that you don't need an international army because international public opinion will now do the work it needs to do, that you can have an international court that will pass resolutions to resolve international disagreements. And Bentham was optimistic that the power of international public opinion would be enough to get individual nation-states into line, that seems optimistic, but that's a sense of the kind of argument that was um, that was going on. It seems especially optimistic in the absence of a common language. I mean, how did, how did Bentham think this international public opinion would share its opinions among itself? Well, don't forget that in the 18th century, everyone spoke French, just as English is the lingua franca of international business and a lot of intergovernmental work today. So too in the 18th century, French was the international language, it was the cosmopolitan language. Today, French is still a kind of official or semi-official language of international diplomacy, and that's a hangover from that period. One of the details I love is the way that Tolstoy's great Russian novel, War and Peace, opens with an awful lot of French, because it begins in this soiree in St. Petersburg around 1805, and all the aristocrats are speaking French to each other, because that's what they did. Another wonderful detail is that when Pierre Bezhukov, the hero of War and Peace, first makes his appearance, it's to get involved in a conversation about one of these peace plans that was floating around, around the time of 1805, around the time of the Third Coalition against Napoleon. That then highlights the other problem, which again, I think goes back right to the origins of this in the early 18th century. And it's true of every attempt to create a European Union, which is some states are more powerful than others, France being the obvious one. It's not always France, but it often is France. And there's a big imbalance there. So how do you create a union? How did they think you created a union? Some of whose members were, as you said, statelets, and some of whose members were these very powerful and very well-armed states. That's absolutely right. And questions of geopolitics always um, play a role in this ongoing conversation. One of the earliest plans is the so-called grand design of uh, King Henry IV in France, and that's an attempt 
to get the other powers of Europe on side with France in order to constrain the Austrian Habsburgs. So it's very much a plan with uh, geostrategic ambitions. The Abbe de Saint-Pierre's plan that was offered around the time of the Treaty of Utrecht works the other way, but with respect to France. The idea is that if the British can get interested in this, if the Dutch can get interested in this, then everyone will see this is a way to box France in. So there are all these concerns about great power politics. From the 18th century onwards, a very widespread theme in the arguments about European Union is fear of growing Russian power. What had been the effects of Peter the Great's reforms in Russia had the growth of Russian power destabilised the European state system? What was the role of the Russians in the 1815 peace settlement in Europe and so on? So great power politics are never far away. In the 19th century, one of the things that some of the international lawyers get concerned about is precisely the way in which peace plans try to fix international relations so that we see this today in the way that Luxembourg is sometimes thought to be overrepresented in European institutions. Well, why? Because it was there at the start and it got kind of overrepresented. It got the privilege of being there at the beginning. And in the 19th century, some people say, look, this is the problem with these kinds of arrangements. They try to freeze a particular international order at a particular moment. But the ebb and flow and the rise and fall of powers means that that will never be stable. And so these international institutions, in order to survive, do have to have an internal flexibility where they can adapt to accommodate the rising power of some powers and the declining powers of others. One of the ideas that a European Union is often opposed to is the basic balance of power notion of international relations. But as you describe it, they're not that distinct. These earlier versions of the European Union, though pure balance of power politics looks pretty unstable because it can get unbalanced very easily. But within the idea of a European Union, there's often an assumption that you are going to have to do some balancing. If this thing is going to be stable, the really powerful states do have to be balanced. That's absolutely right, that the 18th century proponents of a European Union take themselves to be critics of the balance of power system. They argue that uh, the system unbalances itself extremely easily. And the easiest way to see that is in these monarchical powers where when one monarch dies, there'd be a controversy about who would succeed them. And there was a war of the Spanish succession and there was a war of the, the Austrian succession. And that's absolutely right. The balance of power is targeted here. That question re-emerges in a very nice way later on, which is that the European integrationists often take themselves to be critics of the balance of power. But then at some point they come to realise all that what they're really doing is simply trying to produce a new balance of power on a global level, because with the rise of American power, which everyone notes during the 19th century, and it becomes blindingly obvious after the American turn to protectionism with the McKinley tariff in 1890, and with the awareness that East Asia is on the rise, and in the early 20th century there's this racist discourse about the yellow peril, but it's bound up with this idea that China and Japan are going to be an emerging regional superpower. Then proponents of European customs union and European market harmonisation and so on are precisely trying to create a European power block that can balance America and East Asia and recreate a balance of power. And so you get this awkward moment, are they critics of the balance of power or are they simply trying to recreate it on a global scale? The other thing the United States does, and it still does, it always offers these two impulses to European Union, one of which is we need to be strong because otherwise the Americans are going to come and eat our lunch. And the other is, they've shown that you can do it. I mean, America is also the inspiration. It is the great union of states into one state. It has a civil war, which is a very sobering moment for anyone who believes in this kind of union. It comes out of that civil war 
increasingly as a world power. So through the 19th century, it's probably an unfair question, but which is the stronger impulse? Is it to counter America or is it to copy America? You get both impulses playing out simultaneously. So there's a chap called Schmidt Fizzledeck. He runs the Danish National Bank for a bit. And around about 1820, he publishes a series of books about European Union, which are based on this idea that American power is growing. Soon America will be self-sufficient and won't require access to European markets for goods. And that will create a very difficult moment for Europe. He, I think, stands at the origin of an idea that some form of European Union is a necessary counterweight to growing American economic power. But at the same time, you get people who do see that some version of what has happened in America can happen in Europe. George Washington, in a letter to the Marquis de Lafayette, the French revolutionary hero of both sides of the Atlantic, is, I think, the first person to use the phrase the United States of Europe. That language doesn't become widespread until the 1848 revolutions in Europe, and then it becomes the usual way in which certain kinds of liberals or republicans talk about a European confederation. But people are always attentive to the differences as well as the similarities that, up until the Civil War, a big chunk of the American economy is a slave economy doesn't work like that in Europe, except perhaps in Russia with serfdom and so on, but Russia is different, or ways in which things are made easier for the Americans because they share a language. And when the the Swiss-German law professor um, Johann Kaspar Brunschli is writing on these questions when he's professor at Heidelberg in the later part of the 19th century, he says, look, the difference is Americans are one people and the Europeans are not. And that means that Europe ultimately can be organised as a kind of confederation, but not as a federation on the American model, because for that you need a unified people, and that's what the Europeans don't have. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What about the other union, which is the obvious model, the one you mentioned, originally the Union of England and Scotland, that becomes the United Kingdom? This is, again, potentially a model. It's also not something to be countered, perhaps, but something possibly to be accommodated that Europe has to include it. But was it ever a driver in these 18th and 19th century arguments as the way that Europe should go, that Europe could do what happened just off the coast? I don't think so. I think the the significance of the Anglo-Scottish Union shows that states are being formed and reformed and combined and so on in the 18th century, that this is a live option. This is not some utopian fantasy. So it's a kind of plastic environment um, that can be moulded. The later union between Britain and Ireland might be significant because that is a more straightforward project of economic unification to try and find ways in which the Irish economy can develop without undermining the British economy. 
But that fails because of the refusal of the king to grant Catholic emancipation. And so again, that doesn't become a model that anyone really wants to follow. And what's going on in Britain, in Ireland, is always somewhat at one remove from some of the arguments going on on the continent, because then as now, people aren't quite sure what to do with Britain. Um, It's very easy to make arguments about how land-based continental powers will benefit from forms of economic and political cooperation with their immediate neighbours. And again, from the 19th century onwards, you can get a long way just by invoking fear of Russia, fear of growing Russian power. Germany doesn't want to be caught in the middle. France doesn't want to be left on its own to face Russia. But the arguments about Britain are always more complicated. Some schemes that are produced do have the British as part of it. Other schemes have them very much outside this idea that Britain is a maritime power with its economic interests focused along transoceanic connections. And so the way people talk about Britain varies quite a lot over this long durée. So the Anglo-Scottish Union is never especially on people's minds. Again, it's an easier business because there's only two countries and they all speak English. You mentioned a customs union, language that we still use. How far did people think you could go with that? I mean, a customs union is not the same as a European union, but as the driver? Absolutely. So the key historical predecessor of the European Customs Union is the German Zollverein, the 19th century customs union that linked together the states in the, or most of the states in the German Confederation. And the key theorist is the economist List, who is making arguments about uh, how this is the way to promote international cooperation, this is the kind of perpetual peace program. And in fact, List's proposal is a very nice example of how Britain is figured in relation to these, that List thinks that the continent needs to push for an expanded Zollverein, a customs union, in order to protect itself against British economic power, but that once it becomes sufficiently powerful, the British will be forced to join into it, and that's how you neutralise the threat of um, British maritime and other mercantile interests by ultimately folding them into a more powerful European economic zone. So that's been around for a long time. The time when it really becomes a live political issue, rather than just a German thing that some people speculate might be extended wider, is in the 1890s in the debate that follows the new American tariff walls. And then you get a variety of economists in particular and policymakers who are interested in the idea of creating a Western European or a Middle European, a Central European customs union. In the end, all those projects fail because of animosity between the French and the Germans over Alsace-Lorraine, that these provinces that are ambiguous about are they French or are they German, the Germans annex them after the Franco-Prussian War, and after that it becomes impossible to envisage any deep cooperation between the French government and the German Empire until the question of Alsace-Lorraine is solved. So in the 1890s, the conversation about European Customs Union ultimately doesn't go anywhere But a lot of people are drawn into that conversation and serious proposals are advanced. Is it then assumed if you are going to build a project around commerce and a customs union that a shared legal order will also have to come in its wake or to precede it? Because European Union is also often and still is to this day a legal project. But what's the point at which the law has to be unified as well? So the 
international lawyers are very much on the case from the 1880s onwards. And I've already mentioned Johann Kasper Blunchley at Heidelberg. There's James Lorimer, who's a professor in Edinburgh. These are people that are involved in the Institute of International Law and these other institutions, some of which win early Nobel Peace Prizes in the early 20th century. There's a buzz around this kind of international law. And these are people who very much are thinking about some of the legal issues around European integration. One reason it's sometimes difficult to get a handle on just what they're doing is that these days when we study these people, what we're often really struck by is just how extraordinarily racist they were. A lot of people, a lot of liberals in particular, people who lived through the 2003 war in Iraq, kind of have a a knee-jerk sense of support for international law and think it's a good thing and they want to have more of it and they want international legal institutions to be more authoritative. If you go back to where the discourse of international law really gets going in the second half of the 19th century, a huge amount of it is about trying to create justifications for European imperial domination outside of Europe, in particular for finding ways of arguing for the European domination of the Congo River Basin and setting up the authority of the Belgian administration of Congo, which in only a small amount of time becomes the site of genocidal violence. And these international lawyers often help themselves to a language of what they call natural law, but what they sometimes mean by natural laws are that the races are unequal and that whites are superior to blacks and so on. And that pervades their thinking about European Union as well, that insofar as they're invested in an idea of European Union, they're not alone among this, but it's, it's very striking in their writing. It's because of a sense that Europe is the site of civilizational superiority, and uh, once you can sort out things in Europe, then Europe can sort everything out in the rest of the world. The serious legal conversations are getting involved from the 1880s onwards. When you scratch away at them, they become pretty uncomfortable because of the racial and the imperial subtexts that become inescapable. The First World War, on some accounts, is a kind of European civil war. At least it starts as a European civil war. It also becomes the great driver, the great new impetus for finding another kind of peace. Is it the decisive event in taking this story onto a different level in the 20th century? It is and it isn't. It is because the First World War gives rise to the League of Nations, which is the major international organisation that has a legal existence and is trying to regulate problems of peace and war. But on the other hand, the League of Nations is never a narrowly European project. The Latin American republics are in there from the start. Some European countries are not in there from the start. So it's a story where the long-running conversations about European Union kind of get overtaken by a larger vision of a transnational organisation. The other thing that happens is that President Wilson's 14 points and championing the idea of national self-determination leads to a redrawing of the map of Eastern Europe. But that has very ambivalent consequences for people are thinking about European integration, because some people earlier had looked at these multinational, somewhat federal institutions like the Habsburg Empire, looked for a future that would have the structures of the Habsburg Empire kind of dissolve into some kind of United States of Europe. Well, when you dissolve the structures, the imperial structures of the Habsburg Empire, and have uh, independent nation states instead... In some ways, you're going in the other direction. You're, you're going back to this vision, which in the 19th century, we can associate with someone like the Italian 
Giuseppe Mazzini of an idea that Europe will be a group of nation states who live alongside one another in relations of fraternity, but they might not necessarily need especially formalised institutional arrangements between them. So the end of the First World War is very important, uh, but not in a straightforward way. For the the more straightforward story about the very rapid move to a European Union, you have to go to the end of the Second World War and the way in which, as the 1940s turned into the 1950s, a whole series of these governments now significantly dominated by Christian democratic parties, were interested in creating a European Union built around a customs union, a single market. When you then look at the European Union as it was then and what it has become since, in some respects, it feels like not the culmination of the story you've been telling, but certainly a a continuation of it. And you, you see these earlier schemes as antecedents. In another light it looks very contingent like one of multiple possible ways this could go and if you think that there is the customs and commercial version there's the legal version there's the political armed force version there's the cultural version there are all these different ways of thinking about it is it balancing powers is it bringing powers together when you look as a historian at that long story does the short story look more contingent to you or does it look like something that whose time was eventually going to come That's a good question, and it's a difficult question. One of the difficulties of treating this subject is that it's very difficult not to think of the 18th century schemes and the 19th century proposals as some kind of anticipations or forerunners or forebears or antecedents of what eventually happens. And then the risk that runs is you lead to a very heavily teleological way of thinking about things, and that distorts historical understanding in a big way. One way to counter that is to look at some of the criticisms that the roads not taken or criticisms that amounted in the 19th century. One of the things the anarchist Proudhon says in the 19th century of some of the schemes that are floating around him is that in practice these will lead to the domination by the great powers and for people who think that's the problem with the European Union today that Germany is too powerful within what's supposed to be a cooperative multinational international association. Proudhon's warning does look somewhat prescient as in other respects too. But yes, I mean, there's a great deal of contingency all the way along. One of the fascinating episodes concerns the creation of the European Union itself, that Christian democratic governments find it easy to cooperate around projects of European Union. Christian democracy is a form of political Catholicism that becomes very powerful in West Germany and Italy and the Benelux countries after the war. And these parties are led by men who were tied together in networks based around Geneva in the 1930s when they're in exile from the fascists and so on, who know each other well and have been talking about international cooperation for a long time. To some extent, the power that stands outside that is the French, where political Catholicism never has anything like the same sway in the 20th century. And so one puzzle is, well, why do the French get interested in participating in this scheme of European Union? And one of the intriguing answers is that they see it as a way to shore up their empire, that if there can be economic cooperation between the West European powers that will free up German capital and Dutch capital and make that available for French colonial, French imperial infrastructure projects in West Africa as part of a French project to hold on to their empire. Now obviously the French empire in Africa collapses very quickly after the Treaty of Rome is signed and it's one of these late imperial episodes that people don't much like to draw attention to these days. But paying attention to these episodes reminds us of how contingent the creation of things like the European Union are, but also how many different ideologies are in play, whether religious or imperial or liberal or and, and so on.
Do you feel if this one fails, there are still, when you look at the long history, lots of other ways we could do it? Or do you think we have now wrapped this idea up in this this version of it? Because after all, there are still lots of other ways we could do it, but it's not clear we could ever get to them or back to them. So I don't know enough about the politics, especially of international banking. I mean, I think if the current European Union fails, it will be because some banking crisis blows up the European financial system on this podcast. Helen Thompson is the person to ask about that. Whether there's a European Union Mark II to replace the current one, I think will depend on what form a breakup takes or what form a collapse takes and how long people try to keep a failing institution going, because that will set the scene for the next phase of the story. But I would have thought that if the current European Union collapses for whatever reason, there's enough legal harmonisation, enough of the political class has instincts towards cooperation. My guess would be that there would be an attempt at a European Union 2.0, but exactly what form that would take would have to depend on the, the way in which the existing union fails. We will tweet links to some of Chris's writing on this subject about Rousseau and many other things at tppodcast underscore. And as always, there's further reading in our show notes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.